You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is the fastest growing social media app for the outdoor enthusiasts. Whether you hunt, fish, hike, or camp, Go Wild has a feature for you. You can visit timetogowild.com for more information or visit your Google App Store on your mobile device and download the Go Wild app. Let's get outside. It's time to go wild. All right, welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. I am your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we are here for another special hunting podcast um, with a good friend of ours. And uh, he's got a very interesting story, great strategy involved, great uh, property architecture, habitat work. But overall, we're just going to hear some good old hunting stories here with our good friend, Seth Harker. Before we get him on the line... Uh, Matt, you got any announcements you would like to share? Well, I, I think that uh, the last time we had Seth on the phone, we talked a little bit about this buck in particular. And Seth's got, like I said, an awesome property, uh, but a lot of great information to share as he tracks deer through trail camera observations, everything, very closely. So there's a lot of insight that's just, yeah, a hunting story, but there's a lot of insight that's going to come from this conversation based with Seth and how he ends up targeting one of his hit list bucks this year. So um, I think it'll be very informational. I agree. Uh, one thing also, another announcement is our hats. First batch of hats is out. Woo! You'll hear us talk more on that over on the Habitat Heroes podcast. But if you haven't heard yet, go check it out at landandlegacyapparel.com or you can go to landandlegacy.tv and check out the shop tab. Absolutely. There's some Sweet looking caps. That's right. I think there's something for everybody in there. Uh, there's even some decals. So if you want to just get a decal and slap that on the truck or bow case or yep. on the back of a laptop, those are the three most uh, abundant places I think you'll see laptop or <laughs> laptops see decals. But before we get started with Seth, we have a we have one more announcement. You never know what the elements are going to throw at you as a hunter. you got to be prepared. One way we prepare for all the elements a season can throw at us is hunting out of redneck blinds. Absolutely. Everything from their fiberglass blinds, their soft side blinds, the hay bale blinds, and now the waterfowl blinds. There's a blind for almost every situation. Yep. Um, it's American-made, and they're going to last a lifetime. That's it. The thing I love so much about redneck fiberglass blinds is the ability to hunt areas without trees or with swirly winds to where now we can put them in place, close up the windows, and then when it comes time for the shot, open the windows up, and we're still in the game. 
For me, love the little secret of the hay bale blind. We're in cattle country. You can move in a hay bale blind the day of the hunt. Deer are pretty accustomed to them. They're not scared of them. Very applicable to hunting in our neck of the woods. These blinds are awesome. Get you out of the elements and ready for hunting. And the other huge benefit, how many shooting houses did you build as a kid? I built a ton of them, and <laughs> Actually, none of them are still with us. Yeah. So these are going to last a long, long time. Check them out at redneckblinds.com. All right. So this is our good buddy, Mr. Seth Harker. I hope he's on the line. We had him mute it for a second, but uh, hopefully he's here, and we are going to hear all about some of the strategy in his season thus far. That's Seth, right. are you there? Yes. yes, sir. I'm here, loud and clear. Perfect. All right, man. The last time we had you on the podcast, I think, was September, early September yeah. or late August, somewhere right in there. We were scouting beans. We had a you had a standing Stratton seed or Stratton soybean field, and we were trying to catch a big buck coming out into that field. Didn't go so well. Mm. We Hot. saw tons of deer, We though. saw tons of deer, but we just didn't see the monster we were looking for. And actually, one of the bucks we were looking for was the buck that is the topic of discussion on this week's podcast, correct? That's right. Yep, that, that's right, Snoop. That's the one we've been after, and and uh, we we closed the deal on him, so yes. Now, remind me again, what you shot him during Missouri rifle season, correct? Shot him Missouri rifle season. Um, let's see, it would have been... Uh, Opening oh. weekend, so November twelfth, right or eleventh? No, it was actually. Oh, uh, you didn't shoot him opening weekend. Yeah. Th- that Monday. Monday. Oh, so, so the the thirteenth. Yep, that's when it would have been. Yep. Awesome, awesome. So, um, g- go ahead and introduce us to Snoop, the Buck. Well, Snoop was a deer that we knew had a lot of potential. Um, Actually, uh, I was made aware of Snoop um, when I shot a great deer we call E.T. Um, E.T. just had just huge eye guards, and he was actually in the frame when I got to harvest E.T., and he was just an awesome buck as a three-year-old. We knew that he was just an awesome eight-point. He had just had everything you wanted, beans, good twos, good threes. Um, you could tell he was young. Um, and you can just tell you have that potential. I did pick up a shed that following spring, um, and we just knew or we felt that uh, if a car didn't hit him or he didn't die for whatever reason, that uh, he was going to be a special special buck that we, we hoped that we were going to get to target and hunt. You know, you bring up an interesting point, not to get off the track of Snoop Dogg, but you mentioned car fatality. It, do, have you experienced some of your bucks getting killed by the highway. And for our listeners, I'll just share that a pretty popular highway runs right through the middle of your farm. Well, we have been fortunate enough not to have just one of those ones that we're after, but yeah, we've had uh, a lot of uh, younger, younger bucks and lots of does that get hit there. Um, Now we don't know what those younger bucks were ever going to, make it too but yes we we do we do have a lot of deer hit right there um and as you guys know uh i use part of that and getting ready to incorporate all of that that bottom open ground into food plots um even though it's right by the highway 
Um, we are using that good soil, river bottom soil, even though it's by the highway, we're, we're incorporating that into our, our food plot plan um, with other strategies we use to buffer and so on and so forth. In fact, we're really going to step that up um, this next growing season. We have some really cool ideas, and we're going to use all of it instead of just the section um, that I've used to focus on Snoop. Um, so, yes, they do get hit. Um, hopefully, those those ones we're after uh, continue to slip past the, those bumpers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of neat that, you know, your story kind of began with Snoops as you were harvesting another hitless buck. Like, I'm sure you had seen him on camera in passing, but, you know, until that, you know, in-person encounter happened, you really got to see, man, that's a great deer, and get an estimate of his age. And you said two and a half then, so you find his sheds, and then as, as he gets into that three-and-a-half-year-old stage, what is he doing um, and, and what kind of caliber of a deer is he at that point? Uh, you know, he really jumped. I'm going to say he went to a touching, you know, 140 inch as an eight point, which is a big eight point that Ooh. you guys know in Southern Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he may have been 137. He was just, you know, 137, 140. Once, you know, we don't know, but, um, he was an awesome Southern Missouri eight point. Uh, like I said, he carried those twos, giant twos, giant threes. What was interesting, probably the most interesting thing about him, um, was he kept the same home range. Hmm. I mean, he did. He did not change it. Um, he just kept it, even from young to old. I mean, as as he was growing, he he kept the exact same home range. Um, and did not, did not really ever change from that. Um, and you're, and you you're know, saying home range from when you're catching him, documenting him heavily into the summertime. And then again, start of season, you know, October, November, December, you're watching him very closely through that time frame, oh, And he's keeping the exact same yeah, movements. Definitely. Um, you know, it, I knew the exact scrapes. I've documented the scrapes that he particularly used, um, and that was one of the ways, 100%, that uh, I kept up with him. And actually, if you will, we didn't we didn't predict the future, but we we used what we we had gained. And man, he stayed right on the cue cards. Wow. Um, in fact, the redneck that we put up. Um, in the last podcast that we shot when we were actually scouting for him, if you don't remember, um, you know, I said I felt like that deer was within earshot of the podcast that we were shooting. Right. Um, and that particular blind was put up. We play, replaced it with, there was a hay bale blind there. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get up off the ground, and that's where we killed the deer. I mean, yeah. we, we actually put the blind up um there to harvest that deer i mean that was where we planned to harvest that deer yeah um and we we did um so it was just gathering all that information um and just compiling it it doesn't always happen that way you know Sure, sure um but for whatever reason um you know, and I think it goes a lot with our habitat work as you guys well know mm-hmm. um they have everything that they need 
right there. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not saying that we can do such a good habitat work that our deer are not ever going to jump over on the neighbors. Sure. But I truly believe, well, I know because I've witnessed it, that if you have better habitat, the chances of that deer, even a buck, staying on your property for a longer time period is greater. Right. Um, you know, and we just have all of that going. We have the cover. Um, we, we have the water. We have the food. Um, we have the does. And I feel like they want to spend more time uh, on, our, on our particular farm. No doubt. You know, there's no reason for them to want to leave or have to leave. The security, the food resources, like I said, everything is already in place. So it's just extra energy that they're spending that they don't need to spend to move off of your property. So they're very regular customers on the property. And then you have that security feature that they tend to be regular customers during daylight hours as well. And because of the history you've built within the property and know how deer utilizing these habitat, um, improved habitat places, you know where to document them with trail camera images, with scrapes that open up every single year. And that's, I guess, kind of one of my questions is, you know, you identified Snoop's as a Snoop as a great deer and then kind of focused in on him. And yes, he kept the same pattern and movements from, you know, two to three and then here into four, but it's not like he's the only one who does that. I'm sure right now there's other up-and-comers that you're watching who are doing the same thing that they did last year. I, Definitely. I, right. There are. Interestingly enough, there was a buck we call One-Eyed Jack that, that uh, he uh, spent most of his summer months in velvet with Snoop. Mm-hmm. He's a really old buck. Uh, we've got him estimated at six to seven. We've always been able to keep a, a tabs on him because he's weak in his left eye. You can tell when the infrared goes off, and he's pretty well kept the same rat characteristic. But when the infrared goes off on the camera, he's if he's not completely blind, there's something wrong with that eye. Um, and One-Eyed Jack, um, he is a recluse after the velvet pills. Right. Um, in fact, this year was the first year in all these years that I've hunted other bucks that have ran with him. This year was the first year that I have ever saw him in daylight um, hours, period. Wow. Now, I'll always keep, you know, similar tabs within this home range that we're talking about and within his habitat. But, I mean, he he is a creature of the dark. Um so he's got that different personality, um, you know, but, you know, I still feel like because of the habitat we have, like I said, I saw him in daylight um, as I was uh, hunting for Snoop. Interestingly enough, I saw him within a hundred yards of this exact terrain trap, this terrain feature incorporated with uh, our food plot. Next to the highway, I saw him within 100 yards of, of this particular terrain trap that we've keyed in on over the years. I think it is very important to point out, this is very important to point out, um, and keep in mind, I have followed Snoop for for four years now, um, you know, ever since he was a little guy. 
but keep in mind, and this is very important, um, and, and people could say, well, that's a fluke deal, um, you know, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but I missed Snoop in, what was it, late, uh, no, it was about mid-October, I missed Snoop. Right. Um, with, with archery tackle. Go ahead and tell um, us that story. Cause I wanted, so, to, I wanted to hear the full story on that one. Like you don't have to tell me where you were, but this deer was coming in October 16th. Where were you? Well, I was actually, um, I was just west of where we had been velvet scouting, um, is where I was. And we've got a nice, um, the head of a hollow comes up and it goes up to one of our destination food plots. Uh, we had Stratton green, Stratton beans. We also had some standing corn. Um, the acorns really hadn't rained down hard as far as the red oak go. And it seemed like for whatever reason, the white oak, they were, they were kind of shifting off of those. So these green food plots and beans and corn, they were really coming into place. There was just a little window there. Mm -hmm. Um, trail cameras were showing that um so i had pulled um actually cutting back cards and uh i had saw snoop um he had been coming up to these particular food plots pretty frequently right um another thing i think it's important to point out is is i had one daylight of him up here um and a lot of nighttime photos um, okay. but that still didn't deter me because of the high pressure that we had coming in. Yeah. So, um, so you I, used, I felt like if, you used the trail camera ahead. information, even though only one daylight image revealed him, you know, obviously within shooting hours, he still was a regular customer, but customer up there, but it was the weather pattern that ultimately made you go in and say, I can kill him here. Right. High pressure. You know, I just had this, you know, the hunch that, hey, you know, if he's going to come out any night, this is going to be the night. Um, keep in mind, he's still in the interior down there. I'm getting lots of daylight photos down on the interior around the pine plantations um, and on the lower side of a clear cut we have. Those are hard to hunt, as you guys know, they're down on the steep terrain. Um, it's hard to catch winds. It's hard to get down there and, and actually hunt. So anytime we can hunt him on either side of, of where he spends most of his time, we can catch better winds. We stand a better chance. So anyways, this particular night, uh, you know, I'm like, man, we have a good chance. And, man, it worked out. You could not have asked for a better hunt. You could have not have asked for better video footage. It, it was just one of those beautiful, beautiful nights. The wind was wide. It was five mile an hour. Yeah. Uh, out of the Northwest. Um, and I, I made this particular clover field just, oh, it's probably an eighth of an acre. Right. And I took this clover field in uh, to these Stratton beans and Stratton greens because they kind of dump out in there. And I always keep that clover mode. Um, and it's just a beautiful transition for them. Right. Um, sure, sure enough, the sunset, this particular uh spot you know it's destination so we don't get a lot of just early early movement but when the sun starts to set you can almost set your watch by it the deer start to to filter in and that's exactly what happened sun starts going down um all these does start feeding in and i hear a buck 
back behind these does, um, making a rub or, or a scrape, I can just hear for, you know, three or four minutes, just, mm-hmm. and I never got excited because as you guys know, I have a lot of deer. So in my wildest dreams, I never thought uh, this is going to be Snoop. Sure. I, th- I thought this is going to be an eight point. Yeah, this is going to be a spike. Um, I, I never was convinced that it was Snoop. Well, as these does come out and they begin to feed, um, in the clover and then they're transitioning over into the, uh, the green, um, here comes Snoop and I didn't catch him at first, but there's a community scrape right in the corner. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I catch him, he's actually dressing this scrape. Um, and I turn the camera on, it's already, I actually, uh, this is why I say just everything went into place. I had already focused on this scrape um, and had the camera ready to turn on and hit record. Right. Thinking that, man, if he reads the script, that's where he's going to be. And, and I turn the camera on, he's already there. He finishes the scrape um, and he starts to, to uh, approach these and kind of funnel them where he wants them to go and, Everything is just beautiful. You can't ask for better better footage. And uh, long of the short is, he comes up through the clover. He's not worried about eating. He's worried about these does. And uh, I shoot, and for whatever reason, um, I had broadhead deployed in mid-flight. I've shot a lot of deer with mechanical heads, but uh, this is the one time I had, had a failure. And mm-hmm. it deployed, and I missed the deer by 10 feet. Oh, boy. And, and how, um, how far was he away from uh, He was right around 50 yards, which, as you guys know, that's I shoot a lot of deer in food plots at 50 yards mm-hmm. um, and, and typically don't have any problem at all. But the, this, this broad, you can see the arrow. It's just headed right for it, and then it just like just something just, yeah. Right. I mean, it, it was, and you can hear it, too. I mean, it, it just, buzzes. Right. Um, you can hear it. It sounds great. And then, woo, it just, it kind of takes off. So, uh, very disappointed. Um, and here's what I wanted to, to make a note of, um, after that. So he, he bounds off into the Stratton, uh, beans and, uh, he, he doesn't know what's going on. And he really focusing on these does, like what's going on. He's looking, kind of looking to them for, the answer to what just happened. Well, he, for whatever reason, I don't know if, he, if it was his sixth sense or, or whatever, he blows, and I mean just takes off uh, towards the north. After this, uh, I mean, after this, he changed, or I felt like he changed. Hmm. Um, he really starts to put his guard up, it feels like, Pictures are coming mainly at night. Um, I do have a few cameras that I, were already deployed down in his core bedding area um, that I did get some daylight of him, but he begins to change. Um, and, and, I mean, we can say that, all oh, that's a fluke deal. He didn't know or he did know. I feel like that um, he got harder to kill after the mess. Um, just, just my personal feelings are that he got a little tougher to kill um he uh he just displayed different um just different characteristics when i did shoot him too 
um, it was interesting because it was kind of a similar scenario. But when I when I did finally wind up harvesting the deer, um, I I did the the normal meh to stop him, and man, it just seemed like you could look all over him, and he knew what like I've been here before, I've seen this before, and I just walked into the wrong slot. Interesting. Um, but you could just kind of sense it that, you know, and we all know that pressured whitetails are different animals to hunt. Sure. Um, on on your guys' farm, I'm, I'm, I mean, you guys know the neighbors get after them pretty hard. Um, and I don't know for sure if they've, if they've associated your farm with that safe sanctuary like they have mine, but, but that is a big part of our management, not just, all the habitat work we do, but the pressure, um, managing pressure, I think if you can, um, is one of the biggest management tools that we, we have as hunters managing our own, our own properties. So um, give us an example of something you've done over the years beyond just, you know, the typical hunt, hunting the wind correctly what are some other things that you purposefully, intentionally do to manage or reduce pressure on the property? Okay, so um, a lot, one of the main things, there's a lot of them, and a lot of people are going to think, wow, he takes this to the extreme. He's a nut. <laughs> um, because I do do a lot of things. One of those things are entry and exit routes on our stands, like I was talking about earlier, about hunting that interior down to where, yes, we're getting these daylight photos. Yes, the deer are moving down there, but one of my strategies are is I don't want to move down in there, and I don't want to pressure him in the sanctuary that he feels comfortable moving in daylight. Sure. I want to hunt the fringes. Now, I'm not saying that during the rut, and I'm talking peak rut when they're really doing it, that I do not make it some ventures in there. But as those deer are still in their normal patterns, I am not going to move in, and I am not going to pressure these deer because these daylight movements, I, I, that's what we're trying to encourage. You know, I've hunted a lot of... I've killed a lot of deer on government and conservation land. They are different animals. You have to apply a whole different strategy to even hunt um, these deer. So we're encouraging daylight activity by not giving them a negative um, experience, if you will, just like that negative experience we just talked about. We don't want negative experiences. Um, one thing is, is on my food plots that I hunt, another thing, I guess, uh, is I stay late. If the deer are feeding in, and, and my son hates it, <laughs> if the deer are, are feeding in, I'll watch with binoculars. I may stay 30, sometimes 45 minutes and let those deer comfortably feed on that food source. Gotcha. Um, and as, as Adam knows, I always bark or howl or something to, to make those deer exit that field. I never want them to see me coming out of my stands. Um, you know, and it stinks to stay late, but I feel like what it allows me to do is hunt those stands um, mul- I mean, multiple times. What I have noticed, um, 
on a lot of my food plots, staying that late. Um, typically, when those deer come into the food plot, um, I mainly document them staying no more than a half hour if they're really coming in to feed. Yeah. Staying, I mean, I'm not saying they don't bed down sometimes and hang around the edges and go make a scrape, and they do that, or sometimes they just go and bed down. But 30 minutes seems to be about the magical feed time they really have the heads down eating and then a lot of those deer are already exiting and they're leaving they're going wherever they go sure um so letting those deer feed out even when i'm hunting um that's that's one of the things we do um we don't want them to have that negative experience another thing is which a lot of guys are going to think i'm nuts on probably is my doe management, and as you guys know, I need to kill those. Right. And really, I need to throw this strategy out the window and just go kill does. But if I'm hunting a buck, I'm not killing does. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I do kill a doe, um, I like, like all of us like, I want a good, quick, clean kill. I'm not going to be shooting those does out there 50 yards like we do some of the bucks. Sure. You know, I want... 20-yard shots, I want them to be clean, quick. I want to be able to drive to them. Um, I don't like to talk. I don't like to get out there and beat the brush down. I want that deer picked up and put in the truck. No gutting there. You know, I don't know if that affects them. Maybe it doesn't. Right. Um, but it's, it's, just it's what more I less, do. And it's I more or less get... your time spent there in the area after the harvest. You want to minimize right. that. Right. So, so that's kind of a few things that we do. Um, and I know not everybody can do that. And some guys are like, well, probably like I have a hundred acres, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I still think even if you have a hundred acres, you know, we've got a 160 acre farm that lays just as narrow as you've ever seen. Access um, is tough on that, that parcel. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to hunt. Um, but it can be effectively hunted, um, and we've learned how to effectively hunt it, and it's a great farm. Right. So, I mean, those are just some of the things that we do. You know, we don't want deer to experience, uh, deer remember negative experiences that they have. That's why government land deer are so much harder to hunt if it's heavily hunted. Sure. Um, they experience, uh, you know, if they experience deer drives or hunters coming in, they remember that, I believe. Um, I believe just like Snoop, um, he kind of had that negative experience, um, and I think he kind of he kind of caught on to what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of, I think he kind of felt like he, he, he was being hunted. Now, that goes to say, I, I had shot, a, uh, shot at a deer we call Comrade. Um, and I missed that deer twice. And that thing, he never, he just had that personality. He never caught on. Interesting. Um, do you think that was something that, like that he, situationally based as in like he was locked on does and did you stop him he, in the same manner you did snoops? Snoop? Oh yeah. I, I mean, what, but the first time I shot at him, I actually hit him in the horns with an arrow, believe it or not. Um, wait, when was the, this? Oh, this was, uh, what was this? Two, two Decembers ago. Two Decembers ago. I hit the redneck blind, um, the window, the oh, arrow deflected. Yeah. Um, 
and then I hit him in the antlers. Uh, craziest thing. That is crazy. And uh, then uh, I made, I had a, uh, my uh, muzzle loader, but two weeks later, it, it prematurely fired. Mm. Uh, so he never caught on. Now, after that, uh, he kind of, he went nocturnal. I mean, I, I don't know if he, he caught on after that or the weather just kept him nocturnal. But after that, I never got a daylight picture of it. Oh, wow. Um, and, and he's gone. I don't, I don't know where, where he went. We know that we didn't hit him. Um, cause I did get pictures after that. Um, but, uh, he, he kind of started coming in nocturnal and we, we have no idea where he went. Um, so those are just some of the things that I kind of do to keep low pressure. And I believe deer recognize whether it's a hundred acres, um, or 500 acres. Now you get smaller than that, you might have a little trouble. I don't know, but they recognize a. There's a reason they think a bedding area that they lay down in is a safe spot, and and they can their brains, I believe, let them interpret the same information with a hundred acre farm that doesn't get pressured. Um, you know, they understand that. Hey, when I jump over the fence there. Uh, my neighbor's 16-year-old son drives around on his four-wheeler, and when that four-wheeler stops, there's lead flying at me, mm-hmm. um, or whatever the case may be. That they understand that, and they interpret when they hear that four-wheeler, you know, hey, that dude, he he likes to do this or shoot at us or what, and they 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 experience the same thing that hey, over on Matt's hundred acres. You know, he goes and checks cameras, and I watch his trucks drive by, or his truck. You know, it comes in here once or twice a week. The does stay bedded. Um, you know, he sees us. He doesn't hit the brakes. He just casually drives through, or, or whatever the case is. And he interprets that, or they interpret that as, this is a safe place. Goes the same thing with the doe in the rut. If those does are comfortable on your property, guess what? You have a buck chasing that doe. Um, they're typically, typically gonna, you know, react with that no, you know, mm-hmm. now she's going to stay on the property too and keep him right. on the property. Yep. Right. So low pressure, um, low pressure habitat, um, and learning about the deer's personality. Um, you know, and, and I believe that's what all came into play with, harvesting snoop mm-hmm. learning about you know how the deer behaved from year to year i will say this too <clears throat> when he was three and a half the deer was very 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 visible right. um, two and a half he you know two and a half you could set your watch by him he was out two hours before before dark i mean just right. out doing his thing as he got older he got more nocturnal and that's just nature of the beast. That's what they're going to do, period. Um, and as he did get older, he did get more nocturnal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, instead of him just coming out on these big food plots every day like he did when he was young, you know, it, it took these fronts and it took these weather events um, that we all like to follow and hunt to get him out. Right. Um, yeah. So that's that's kind of the story, and that's kind of the the uh, the strategies that that we use on our farm uh, is profiling the personality, 
habitat improvement, and low pressure. Those three things, uh, I believe, if you're going to be able to manage your property, um, those three things are the A number one things that we as hunters can do. And if you hunt government land, um, it's figuring out what pressures are there, um, you know, and the better habitats and how the deer are are ranging in that particular area. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to figure that out. Um, you know, big. I, I I got to the fortunate enough to harvest a big. He's a 160 inch deer um, on August day bush, which you guys know is up by St. Louis, Missouri. Um, it's an 11 day hunt, and I had had decided to take the full 11 days off. And what I did the first six days. Now this this is pretty interesting. The first six days, I scouted. I never hunted once. Mm. I scouted the first six days to figure out, and a lot of guys are like, well, why didn't you, why didn't you hunt, you know? It's because I had to figure out how those deer were reacting around the pressure, um, and I also wanted to know where the habitat, where they were staying, um, and so on and so forth. What I wound up finding out, I took a huge topographical map with me. It actually took two of them because it's a 7,000-acre um, farm or rant or conservation area is what it is, full of lakes and roads and so on and so forth. The first three days I spent mapping where almost everyone else was hunting. That's mm-hmm. what I did. I yep. would drive around. I'm getting up in the morning. Everybody else was headed out. And what I was doing was I was taking this map and I was marking where everybody was parking. Um, so when we would get back to camp at night, I could take this map out, and you could see where, man, there's a lot of pressure right here. Mm, right. Um, we wound up finding the ninth day a little road. Um, I'm not. I can't give this away either, because <laughs> um, I may want to draw again. Anyways, there's a little dead end road um, that you have to go through a guy's yard to get to. I see. Yeah. And we. We happen to find this, and it dead ends into this particular uh, area. We walked in, and, I mean, it was like glory bound. I was like, wow, here it is. Um, I had already had several terrain features um, mapped out, ready to go, um, and all the ones that I found had been X'd off because of the pressure. Guess what? Those easy ones that I found, guess what? Everybody else found them, too. So long and the short is we found this spot. Um, we go in. I'm like, man, this looks promising. Then we start hunting. Uh, we weren't, we didn't have the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, these deer that we were seeing, um, you know, they weren't all jacked up and keyed up. Sure. Um, you could tell it was, you know, these deer didn't get as much people time as a lot of the other deer. So we keyed in on that. Um, and that's exactly what we're doing. You can do that on government land or conservation land if you put in the effort. And that's exactly what we're doing on these farms that we manage. Right. Um, we're just applying these simple, simple things. And eventually, complacency kills whitetail bucks. It just does. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can get them comfortable, uh, you, you, can, you can kill them. They're still a challenge to kill. Sure, but I mean, if you can get them comfortable, uh, that that is the that is the key. If you can get them comfortable with the habitat, uh, with the pressure, 
um, you know, you, you can kill them. So well, that is uh, how we actually harvested Snoop is learning about his personality. As you guys, the, just the ongoing habitat improvement, he wants to stay there, um, monitoring the trail cameras. And not only that, the years previous, because when those trail camera photos, we, we all know what happens when, the, when they really start to rut a little bit. You can have those trail cameras out, but, you know, they're not coming and visiting every scrape when the does come in heat. They're cruising through a food plot. They're, you know, even though those cameras are there, you may not be getting photos of them. So at that point in time, you can hunt hunches mm-hmm. That's a lot more effectively because of what you have, um, you know, taken in years prior. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it allows you to say, hey, I know this deer. I know that in years prior, he has particularly rutted in this pine plantation, and, and then he cruises to here and to here. Not to say you've got every piece of the puzzle figured out, but you've got a higher odd um, if you've done your homework and you've learned about the way he travels in an area. No doubt. No doubt. And I think what the big the big draw um, in both of those scenarios, the Snoop and the public land, is the managing the pressure. You have control over it there on your your private ground, but when it comes to the public ground, you have to take an understanding of of or survey of how other people are hunting and find those areas because the deer react to pressure in both of those scenarios very similarly. They're going to avoid some areas there. and flock to other areas so that's important right very very similar which you know and and which always and i found it and this would be a great video segment for us to do um and possibly a podcast but interestingly enough as we do habitat improvements sometimes we do a big huge habitat improvement like you know a hundred acre tsi Mm -hmm. or the most recent one that we talked about the last time i shot a podcast with you guys um the big clear cut tsi to release the white oaks in the area i mean that was almost 57 acres i believe Right, right um what's interesting about it um and i had noticed the change years back as we were doing these habitat improvements it changes the way the deer move. Oh, for sure. Um, so sometimes you'd have this really awesome spot where, well, kind of like where uh, I harvested Snoop. It's, it's, it's dynamite. That's where we killed Rover last year, too. I mean, and it's just this golden key that we feel like that, you know, we've came on to. And so as you're thinking about habitat improvements and you're looking around that area, you're like, oh, man. This spot is so awesome, man. If I do this improvement over here, what's it going to do to to this spot? Sometimes it makes it better. Sometimes you just have to adjust. But sometimes um, the moral of the story is our habitat work, it changes stuff. And and you can either do it right um, or you can do it wrong. Um, But it does change the way deer move. It changes the way the deer feed and react on the landscape. Absolutely, and, and it, for better or for worse, like uh, for us, it's always we want to change it because <laughs> most instances 
the patterns are very uh, sporadic irregular. and right. very irregular, and there's no good way to pattern them. So when you start changing up, it's easier to pattern deer. Um, and if right. you lay it out correctly, you're basically you're manipulating and steering the deer the way you want them to move across the property. Right. And yeah, and you guys are doing a obviously great job of that. And, and this year, I mean, guys had on that farm have had a great season and I suspect that it's only going to get better and better as things, as things evolve for sure. And we still got two, well, how many deer? Four, I think really good bucks that are moving and that we're trying to put our sights on to where as soon as my wife can push this baby out <laughs> and late season gets here we may be at back after it for a few days so muzzleloader season looks like it could be awesome yeah and you guys have those muzzleloader tags and mm-hmm. yeah exactly that, that is that is going to be awesome it's kind of been uh the saving them knowing that it's going to be good because you know the way those deer were acting during farm season it's like they're not really leaving the property we don't have to put pressure on them now Let's just see, right. basically, let's continue to build the story with them and set aside our time and tags for late season when we can harvest them um, over food plots. And we know generally what food plots they're going to, from like what you've said in the past with Snoop is, hey, these deer do the same thing from year to year. And we've got some locations in place that are going to be fantastic um, for that's, harvesting. That's awesome. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the way our weather is, it's a beautiful day today, but uh, the way our, these cold fronts that have been coming through, they're already mean cold fronts. Oh, they, they've been so, pretty intense, exactly. If we get a couple of those timed right, it's going to be a very interesting December. Yes, yeah, I am excited for it. We've got several several uh bucks we're gonna set our targets on too and, and the food pots are looking great so mm-hmm. that's that's we're excited to get after them absolutely awesome well seth we appreciate you coming on the podcast sharing your story and your thoughts and strategies on public ground and hunting your farm and hopefully there's something out there for everybody to learn from uh, matt you got anything to say to seth seth keep after it man we'll keep after it for sure december is coming quick december buddy that is it that's it we'll have to uh, have (laughs) you on again talking about uh december food plot strategy i'm ready i hope we've got a another harvest to talk about well i hope we have three or four more harvests to talk about now we're talking Hmm. yeah (laughs) all right sounds good buddy we'll talk to you later later see See ya. ya Well, there you have it. You know, he, he's always good to, as intense of a hunter and land manager um, as he is, it's always good to pick his brain and get another voice, basically, on the podcast as well because he's extremely successful um, in harvesting great deer every single year, but he is so diligent at the same time at watching deer closely and growing and learning from them and ultimately that what is what leads to their demise and downfall um, as he's able to harvest them every single year. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, 
Seth killed a, a one a thing and ended up scoring 182, but it had broken off a big portion of its main beam. It broke off G5 like a G5 or a G5. And a beam. He was a 190 class deer that he killed probably four years, five years ago. Yeah. And uh, then repeatedly kills 150 class deer in the Ozarks every single year. So he's definitely got something going on. But it's always interesting. Sometimes sometimes he gets a little more in-depth about his theories on whitetails. Uh, and, I, and I always chuckle just – because some of them are very valid points, and maybe he's right about all of them. But it's like he thinks a lot of t- he yeah. spends a lot of time thinking about his deer and specific bucks and how to how to get them in bow range. So no uh, doubt, no I doubt. I always enjoy talking to him. He was he was turned up this week. Oh uh, yeah, he was ready to unload a, a pile of. <laughs> he said, "You you haven't interviewed me since August. I got tons of information to share. Yeah, I got months of." months of knowledge i want to drop on you guys but that's that's also the an important lesson is even though he has been so successful in the past and continues to be every single year there's more to learn more to figure out about the property and and different ways to look at the property and i think you know if you're the person who likes to get out there and manipulate the habitat you know don't get complacent and say this is just what i've got um continue to you know wear Glasses that allow you to look at your property in a new way and manipulate it and change it. Um, don't become complacent on your own property. That's right. Uh, we were, I forgot to ask him a would you rather. Oh, yeah. Because that's kind of what we've adapted. This is the would you rather podcast while the other one's the plant and animal profile. So on this one, I would say which if you were invited to hunt Sess yeah. this December, would you rather go to his his 540 or the 360? I'd rather go to the 360. Yeah, just me because too. it just because the 540 up top um, is uh, 30 acres, pretty much yeah. of food, and I I which is a, an extreme draw, no doubt. Tons of draw, but the 360 but is still big. One food plot, and in all the, middle the of... deer go to everything, and, and yeah. it's just it's tucked way back. Um, it holds lots of deer. Great access. Great access, and um, yeah, and now there's a big clear cut right next to it that's got a little bit of a little bit of southern exposure on it. So I think that's going to change yep. the ball game a little bit for him, but only complement that food plot. So yep. absolutely, I agree 100. percent Hopefully, you guys enjoyed this week's podcast, and catch us over on the Habitat Heroes podcast for another um, Habitat Hour where we're going to discuss all the things. Um, if you haven't caught it yet, I don't know which one Dan's going to release first, but uh, it's going to be devoted to a very timely topic that hopefully we can all learn from. So Absolutely. We'll catch you next time. See ya.